So people are always saying things like, oh my God, or thank God, but who is God? So we're going to look today at, just briefly, what we can understand about God just through our senses and logic, what is the Vedic conception of God, and something about Krishna. So this is a question for all of you. What can we understand about God through our minds and senses, just by looking at the world? This is a question for all of you. So, all of you. Yes? There must be um, some intelligence behind some of the systems that we have in place. Like, for example, the ecosystem, the water cycle. Okay, so you're saying that the water cycle, the ecosystem, there has to be some intelligence behind that. What else can we understand? Yes? Um, well, there must be a God because um, you can't actually create anything in a material sense. You can only manipulate material. So, oh, okay. So if we can't actually create, then something must be created. Because we all we can do is manipulate what's already there. We can't create anything new. Someone else must have created something new. What else? What can we understand about God just by observation and thought? Yes. Okay, well, can we understand just with intelligence and thought that it's Krishna who's providing everything? She's such a devotee, see, she has to say Krishna. Could you understand that just with your sense of an intelligence? With intelligence, yes. That somebody is. Would you know it's Krishna? God. Some, somebody. God. Some higher being. Okay. It's providing everything. It's providing the water, the sunlight, the food. What else can we understand? Yes. I say not much because our senses and intelligence are very small. Not much because our senses and intelligence is very small. But there's something more. Yeah. What else? Also, you can get a, you know, what does God, because does God exist and what kind of form is he in because like, there's so much suffering and, you know, we feel so pain and all that. And God's really nice and stuff. Uh, so we might wonder what is God's nature because there's so much suffering. There's um perhaps some of you have read the when read the stories of Sherlock Holmes, the famous fictional detective. So he says God must be good because there are flowers. <laughs> if the flowers are not necessary for life, and the only reason that somebody this is just logic and, and senses, he says that the only reason to provide something nice that's not actually necessary is if you're good. A mean person doesn't provide extras. <laughs> Pleasant extras. I thought that was interesting. Yes? You can perceive some of his opulences reflected through material. Yes, some of his opulences. He's beautiful, so you can appreciate uh, many things that are very beautiful in material nature. Yes. Some opulences also? The opulences like the ocean, the power of the ocean, yeah, the power of a hurricane the amount of uh, wealth that's in the world, so you can understand that the person who created this must be an opulent person. Thank you. Yes? And um, this passage of time and cycles? There's, there's, there's some kind of order, isn't there? So the passage of time and cycles indicates that there's some order. Can all of you in the back there see the screen? Okay. So let's, let's go on. Just this, oops, how do I go back? With that, please. With that. 
Can all of you see that? And it's a little hard to see. Just wanted to contrast a materialistic person looking at the world to a theistic person looking at the world. So someone who says, no, I don't think there's a God, and someone who says, I think there's a God, looking at the same world, what will be the difference? Either somebody tell me something that's the same or something that's different. Yes, you're going to tell me something same or different? Uh, I'm going to tell you what we did, what we mentioned earlier on. Okay. Uh, he's, every, he's everywhere, God. For example, that like he should be, he's in the whole city, um, whole planet, he's in the whole city, sun. Could you understand that just without scripture? No. No. So the question was, what could you understand without hearing from authority? That was the, but that, that's not, I mean, what you said during that. <laughs> but that's the right answer the, to the wrong question. Okay, so. Okay, so materialists think that I'm that I'm getting something I deserve, and spiritualists sees the hand of God. Yes. I'm just saying, but materialists, they are their world, like they're the number one. Ah. Okay, so for materialists, they're the center of their world. I mean, each of us here in this room, we're mostly aware of what ourselves. Right? And a theist, a real theist, is mostly aware of God. Yes. Um, materialists will see an object and, and think, how can I use that to make myself happy? Whereas theists will say, how can I use that in Okay, very nice, very nice. So a materialistic person thinks, how can I use things to make myself happy? And a theist thinks, how can I use this to make God happy? There was someone else over there? Yes? Um, a material person will look at the world and see that. To see what? Okay. Yes. Um, and materialists will think that they can truly get away with something. Oh, I like that. Thank you. So a materialistic person thinks that no one's watching. <coughs> that what we what we do in private is actually private. And a theist knows that there's somebody is aware of everything that I'm doing. Okay. Any other differences? Yes. Philosophy? Yes. Yeah. Uh? Okay, just God is not one, one, one object for uh, philosophy. This is for religion. What, uh, what, uh, what can, can, uh, we do with this? What can I, can I do with this? So, a, a materialistic person thinks God is just for philosophy and religion? Is that what you're saying? The philosopher. The philosopher. Is as an object of religion, not for philosophy. Oh, very nice, very nice. And and thank you for trying to communicate, even though your English is not so good. Thank you. That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot. It makes me feel very happy that you that you are trying to do that. Yes, yes. I think Krishna will really bless you that you had that courage to do that. Yes. Materialists, if they believe in God, they often think that God is impersonal. Yes. Yes. They think that there's only one life and I have to start over. Many times. Yes, materialistic person thinks that I'm simply this body and when this life is finished, everything's finished. Yes. And on top of it, that the material world is meant to be exploited. Yes, this, this world exists for the purpose of my exploitation. Well, the, 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 
So in a way, he's renting the body. It means there is an owner to the body and not the owner. Ah, so I'm just the renter. And I have, I have to pay my rent. Is there anything the same? I don't know if you can see, but the circles interlap, overlap a little. Is there anything the same in the way the theist and the materialist see the world? Yes. Okay, so both people see that there are bad things happen, but they interpret them differently. Anything else the same? Yes. Oh, I like that very much. Yes, Krishna explains that in the Bhagavad Gita, that what's nice to the materialist is day for the spiritualist and vice versa. That doesn't just mean that materialistic people are going to sleep when we wake up. <laughs> Although it means that too. <laughs> but it means that we're doing the same activities, basically. You know, we're eating, materialistic people are eating, but we are doing something to earn our livelihood, they're doing something to earn their livelihood. We have families, they have families. But the consciousness is different. Yes? And the intelligence materialist understands the things as temporary and Yes, that is true. That an intelligent materialist like a spiritualist understands that things are temporary. But the difference is that the materialist who understands that things are temporary says, let us eat, sleep, and be married for tomorrow we die. And the spiritualist says, because things are temporary, I'm not going to try to take pleasure in them. Exactly the opposite. The materialist thinks they're temporary. I better hurry up and get whatever I can get before it's gone. And the spiritualist thinks, why should I bother with something like that? Okay. I, I, we could go on with this for some time. What I wanted to establish here is that, am I speaking slowly enough for the, do I, should I speak more slowly? More slowly. Okay, I, I will, load now. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I was straining your translating capacities. I was speaking in my normal New York pace, so I will try to come to a European standard. <laughs> my point here, if I speed up again, just tell me, because that's my normal modus operandi. <laughs> yes. What can you do? So my point there was that there are things we can understand about God just through observation, hearing, and thinking. There's a limit, like you were saying, there's a limit. But there's a lot we can understand about God. Alright, now, when we reach our limit, then we have to go to authority. Just like if I want to know something about you. So, the way I know something about you is I ask you. I can know something about you just by looking at you and observing you. If I observe you over this period of time, I'll find out something about you. But if I really want to know you, I have to ask your friends or I have to ask you, right? And you have to choose to tell me also. If I say, oh, what's your name? And you don't want to tell me, then I won't know. Unless one of your friends chooses to tell me. So if we want higher information about God, we have to go to someone who knows him. We have to go to the scriptures. So we're going to now look at, and I'm going to cover this very briefly. This is just a very brief overview. Each of these topics in this section we could speak about for weeks. So God in the Vedic scriptures is described as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Now this is the same person, but understood to different degrees. Uh, just like if I'm seeing uh, the trees very far away through that door, so I get a vague impression of the trees. 
If I go a little closer, then I can distinguish this is an oak tree, this is a maple tree. And if I go very close, then I can see the birds and the bugs living in the tree. So the nature of Brahman, it's like seeing God from very, very far away. And many people say that Hinduism accepts God simply as Brahman. That is one understanding of God. When you see God from very far away, all you see is light and energy. It's, it's very vague. But Krishna says that, he said, I am the basis of the impersonal Brahman, which is the constitutional position of happiness. Because when one even has this vague understanding of God, one feels relief from material life. Brahman is impersonal. I just like each of us have some impersonal energy. There's so many things we're doing, let's say you're cooking or you're writing or you're cleaning, and if someone goes in a room that you've cleaned, they're experiencing your impersonal energy, but you're not there. Paramatma, Atma means self and Param means supreme. So the Paramatma is the supreme self. And this is the Lord basically at work. This is not the Lord in his home. And this is God within the material world. He's here as a witness, like we were saying, that if you're a theist, you understand that someone is seeing everything you do. He's the witness, he's the friend, he's the maintainer. In this form of Paramatma, he's situated in the heart of every living being and in every atom. Now, Paramatma is a person... But one is not understanding God the person by understanding the Paramatma. Prabhupada would sometimes call Paramatma the super soul. Just like if I see you at your job, I don't get to know you personally just by seeing you at your job. I get to know a certain aspect of you. Where I was living in America at one grocery store, one food store, one of the ladies at the cash register, her name was Karma. <laughs> So, I know what she, her body looks like, I know her name is Karma, I know that she checks you out very pleasantly, but I don't know anything else about her. I don't know how old she is, I have some idea. And I don't know about her family, I don't know what she likes to eat, I don't, I don't really know, I don't even know what she likes to wear because she's wearing a uniform. Right, so I don't have a, I go in there and I say, oh hello Karma, how are you doing today? <laughs> she says, oh hello. But I don't really have a personal relationship with her. Oops. How am I going like that? What's that? Why is it doing this? There we go. Okay. All right. Very good. Sometimes machines are obedient servants, and sometimes they're not, or maybe the master is just dumb. So the ultimate form of God is Bhagavan, and Bhaga means opulence. So it's described that we can understand the nature of Bhagavan as being unlimitedly full of six opulences. So he's unlimitedly strong. Just like there was that tsunami, right? A wave of water, and it's so strong, it killed, what, how many people? 20,000 people or something like that. Just in a few seconds, wipes out whole cities. And that's just one wave in one part of the ocean. And how strong that is. You know, or one hurricane, one cyclone, just immediately, it can knock out a whole country, practically speaking. One earthquake is so strong. The sun is so powerful. And each of these are just one aspect of the power of Krishna or Bhagavan. 
that he's full of wealth. We were talking about the opulence we find in the world. Mines of gold and of diamonds and so much wealth. So who has created and owns all of that wealth? Sorry, but there's not... You could maybe move up a little bit. And, a little bit more. and the most famous, everyone's heard of God. Doesn't matter where you go in the world, even a very primitive society, everyone's heard of their son supreme, whether they believe in him or not, or they worship him or not, they've certainly heard of him. And beauty, we were talking about how much beauty there is in the world. So who is the source of all of this beauty? Who has created all of this beauty? And knowledge, there is also a lot of, there's so much knowledge to be found that it is not possible for one person, even in millions and millions and millions and millions of years, to learn everything there is to know. So how much knowledge must the Creator have? And another opulence is renunciation. If we think of people who are wealthy and beautiful and knowledgeable, if they're proud, are they attractive? Interesting, isn't it? But if you know some, a very simple, humble person, is that attractive? Yes. I mean, even a materialistic person is attracted to humility and repulsed by arrogance. So this concept of humility, of renunciation, of detachment is another opulence. So Krishna is also very detached. Another explanation, I, can you see that? Not terribly well. Another explanation of Bhagavan is that he's a person with energy. This is extremely important. The impersonal would say everything is God. Now that's in one sense true. Sarvakalamidam Brahman, everything is God. But it's not like that God is broken up into little pieces. Or it's not that God himself is transformed into everything. And that he no longer exists as God. It's not that God has transformed part of himself into the chair, and part of himself as you, and part of himself as your notebook, and part of himself as, you know, the person sleeping over there. So, no, that's, that's, no, just in deep meditation. So that's, What's happened is that Krishna has energies and those energies can transform. And here we see, if you can see it, Krishna's three main categories of energies. Of course, Krishna has many energies. Prasta, Shakti, Vividaya, Suyate, he has many energies. But at the top you see the spiritual energy, the internal energy, is Krishna surrounded by his loving associates in his own world. And at the bottom is the material energy, earth, water, fire, air, ether, which means solid, liquid, gases, transformational energy and space. And in the middle you see three people, uh, one person going to Krishna, one person going to the material world, and one person who's not quite sure. But that's the marginal energy. That's us. So those are the three main types of energy that Bhagavan has. So also, Krishna Bhagavan is the master of the demigods. So, you can't see that at all, can you? Well, what's there? we got to work out a better screen for this. Somehow or other. For tomorrow. So, there's Lord Brahma, and he's surrounded by Shiva and the demigods in the back of Lord Vishnu. That Brahma and the demigods, they go to Lord Vishnu for favors, for guidance, for advice. So, sometimes people also think that those who follow the Vedic scriptures, those who are Hindus, that they believe in many gods. Uh, that Shiva is God, and Brahma is God, and Indra is God, and Ganesh is God, and Durga is God. But that's not a fact. They're all servants of God. They're not independent gods. 
And if this is not clearly understood, because sometimes in the scriptures it will say, if you want something, you can pray to Shiva. If you want something, you can pray to Durga. But that's like in the government, you know, there's different departments. And you may go to this one department for one thing and another department for another thing. But that doesn't mean that each department is the whole government. Now, Krishna himself, though, although the demigods are not Krishna, Krishna does have many different moods and many different forms. So he has many avatars and many incarnations. And boy, that's a nice picture you're not able to see there. That's a, a, a picture of Lord Nisingadev. And uh, it is a particularly nice painting. And I'm, I'm sorry that the facilities definitely need to do something for that. So Krishna, when he has different moods, because Krishna is his form. For me, I'm not my form. So if I have a different mood, my form changes a little bit. But still, I look basically the same, regardless of my mood. <laughs> but when Krishna takes on different moods, his whole form changes. Because his form is himself. So in this, uh, Lord Day form, he's very angry at this demon, Hiranyakashipu, who he's fighting with in this picture. He has a, that's what you can sort of see Hiranyakashipu's sword there. And he's feeling very loving toward Prahlad, his devotee. So in that feeling of anger toward the demon and love for his devotee, that manifests in this form. Or here's another incarnation. This is another wonderful picture that you can't see. This is uh, Lord Varaha fighting with Hiranyaksha. And then this is, can you see Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? A little bit. And you see that he says Radha and Krishna are in the form of Chaitanya. So Chaitanya is Krishna. It's not that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is a different person. He is Krishna. Just if we think about, like, let's say we were going to go now and work in the garden. So for most of us, maybe not everybody here, but most of us, if we were going to work in the garden, what would we need to do? Change our clothes. Right? And if there was going to be Janamasami, we might change our clothes also. Or if you're going to be going to your cousin's wedding or something, you might also change your clothes. So depending on what you want to do, we, we have a different mood. So Krishna, he's thinking, I have everything, but one thing I don't have, I don't know how my greatest devotee feels about me. I can experience it from my point of view, but I want to experience it from her point of view. So he takes on her mood. In our relationships in this world, sometimes we try to do that. We try to see ourselves from others' perspectives. But Krishna actually takes on the mood of Radharani. In one sense, he and Radharani are already the same person. But for the purpose of enjoyment, they separate as two persons. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is not separated. Krishna and Radha are separate. They're the same person. The same person. But his mood is very different. And in this mood of Lord Chaitanya, he's giving out love. Krishna is more neutral. Radharani is very compassionate. So when Krishna takes on the mood of Radharani, then he exhibits great compassion and mercy. Radharani's mood in relationship to Krishna is she sees the devotees and she says, Oh, Krishna, here's a nice devotee. Krishna, here's a... She's trying to bring everyone to Krishna. So when Krishna takes that mood, he is also trying to bring everyone to himself. Did you have some questions? For example, go ahead. Why is he not so well known? 
But if, if, if his whole mission is to let everyone know how to come back to Krishna, then why is it so few people actually know about Lord Chaitanya? I don't know if so few people know about Lord Chaitanya anymore. The more and more people are getting to know about Lord Chaitanya. There's also free will. If somebody doesn't want, then Krishna also will allow them to be in a position of ignorance. If there's no place you can go on the planet and be in ignorance, then it's a little hard to have free will. On the flip side, I don't know if I should say this or not, but once you find out about Lord Chaitanya, it's very hard to run and hide from him. You can try. <laughs> but if you really want to run and hide, maybe you won't. Maybe Krishna Rain said you won't know. But that's a good question. We all we have free will. And Krishna's in the heart. But Lord Chaitanya is so kind that even for the people who are running and hiding, he's sending out the Sankirtan party. So all over the world, I'll track you down. So all over the world, you and I and all of us here, we are going out and bringing the holy name of Krishna to people. So then I wanted to talk a little bit about Krishna personally. So although Krishna has many incarnations, like Nisingadev, like Varaha, so many incarnations, in his form as Krishna, he is manifesting all of the qualities of God. In his other forms, he's not necessarily manifesting all of God's qualities. Just the same example. So, how many people here work at a job? Okay, of those of you who work at a job, when you're at work, do you display all of your personality and qualities? Is there anyone here who shows all of their personality and qualities at work? No. Okay. And when we're with different people, we also show different aspects of ourselves. Is there anyone here who shows all of their personality with their parents? Anybody? <laughs> Generally not. Right? Generally not. Generally there's that little reverence and fear maybe. <laughs> right? Uh, but and with our friends, there are some friends that we show some parts of ourselves to, and other friends we show to. We don't show all of ourselves practically to anybody. So Krishna, in each of his incarnations, he's manifesting some of his qualities and some of his opulence. In the form of Krishna, he manifests all of his qualities. And that is one reason that to be a devotee of Krishna and Vrindavan is very, very rare. Because when you become really a devotee of Krishna, Krishna is fully giving you himself. And that is the gift that, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is giving. That one gets to really know Krishna fully. The people are either tired because they didn't sleep last night, or because it's hot in the tent, or because I'm very boring. So I'll try to make things a little livelier. Alright. Tomorrow we're going to have a better screen and I'm going to have more liveliness. Okay. Try some fireworks. <laughs> so Krishna has unlimited qualities. And there's many qualities listed in the Nectar devotion, but really Krishna's qualities are unlimited. And if we understand that God is a person, person means he must have qualities. We're just going to look at a few of them here. We're going to look at that Krishna is very grateful. 
you can sort of see as a, as the sun's coming up, you can see this less and less and less. So a definition that Rupa Goswami gives is that any person who's conscious of his friend's beneficent activities and never forgets his service is called grateful. Now in this material world, we do things for people and often they see what we don't do instead of what we do. And we may be like that too. <laughs> when people do things for us, are we grateful for what they do or just think, well, yeah, they've done all these things, but, you know, look at these things they didn't do. Or they did this, but not very nicely. <laughs> and we tend to remember what people do. I think especially women are like this. We tend to remember what people do that disturbed us. You know? They say like that, women never forget. If you say something nasty, they remember forever. Most of you probably are not like that. So, but Krishna is the opposite. Anything that's done for him, any service, it can be a very, 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 very small service. You just say his name. We've all been in a crowd when many people are talking and it just sounds like just a blur. And then if someone says our name, we can hear it from across the room. Oh, somebody said my name. Even if we just think they've said our name. So if someone is saying Sinarama, Krishna goes, oh, you're talking about me. And he remembers that. And he thinks, oh, here's someone who cares about me. So he's very, very grateful for any service. And Krishna is also dependable. So in this world, we find no one is ultimately dependable. Why? Why is no one in this world ultimately dependable? They make mistakes. So somebody can be trying to do something nice for us. Just like in Bengal, there were some welfare workers who dug wells. But it turned out that there was arsenic in that water. So many people have become sick from the arsenic. So they intended to do good, but people have suffered. Why else are people not dependable? They're not permanent. They're going to die. Even the marriage vow is till death do us part. It's not eternal. I mean, there's some, you know, so-called religious systems where they say it's eternal. But I don't know. I mean, some of us would probably prefer that it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry. Why else are people not ultimately dependable? Yes. Oh, so, such a nice point. This is something we really need to remember. That people do not have facilities to provide us with everything that we need. No other living being, no other living being can ever give us everything that we need and want. Not our father, not our mother, not our wife, not our husband, not our children, not our country, not the head of our country. No, they don't have the capability. They're also limited. Well, let's see what Krishna can do. So if we find any person who's reliable in all circumstances is called dependable. Do you know anyone who's reliable in all circumstances? Not possible. Right? If you're stuck in a traffic jam, you're going to be late. There's, not, there's nothing you can do about it. But Krishna, has, he doesn't have a problem with that. He doesn't, Krishna doesn't have traffic jams. You know? So that Krishna always protects and maintains his devotion. There's nobody who can always protect us and always maintain our father and mother may be taking care of us, but they can become bankrupt. 
They can become invalids. And then we have to take care of them. Uh, that never happens to Krishna. Then he preserves what we have and he carries what we left. Yoga Shema Vidamyaham. He takes, he, whatever we already have in devotion, we will always keep. And whatever we need, he will help provide it for us. And he's perfectly fair. So other people are not dependable also because they're partial. Someone may say they'll do something for us, but if they like someone else better, then their dependability for us is finished. But Krishna's fair even to the demons. If the demons follow the rules, they also get the result. That's why a demon like Hiranyakashipu, when he did austerity, he got material opulence. Krishna didn't say, well, you're a demon, so even though you follow the rules, too bad for you, buddy. <laughs> no, you follow the rules, you'll get there. It doesn't matter who you are. So another quality that Krishna has is he's very compassionate, especially when he's in the mood of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And compassionate means a person who is unable to bear another's distress. So in this world, whose happiness and distress are we most concerned with? Our own. You know, I'll help you with your distress up to a limit. <laughs> After a certain point, I'm going to be more concerned with my own happiness and distress. I mean, even each of us sitting in this room, we're thinking about the comfort of our own body and how hot we are and how uncomfortable we are and how tired we are and how hungry we are. We're not so much thinking about how hungry and tired and hot and uncomfortable somebody else is. Right? And how does Krishna show his compassion? He comes personally to this world. He could take us rebellious souls and just put us into some sort of, you know, deep sleep forever. But he arranges this world and he comes personally over and over and over again and he sends his dear servants over and over again. He's also compassionate in that he fulfills all of our desires. Now, some of our desires or a lot of our desires are such that when we get them fulfilled, we suffer. <laughs> However, Krishna would not be compassionate if he only fulfilled the desires that were good for us. That's not giving, is it? He also shows his compassion by allowing us to learn the way that we want to learn. And he's compassionate that he gives all good instructions to all living beings. And these last two things, uh, we were talking yesterday about studying the 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. In the 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, it's very nicely explained how Krishna is fulfilling all of our desires and also giving us good instruction. That Krishna is the light of the sun, which inspires people to work ordinarily within the world and inspires the devotees to remember Krishna and to have strength and energy for their service. He's the light of the moon, which also enthuses materialists in another way, and it enthuses the spiritualists to think, oh, how beautiful and soothing the Lord is. And he gives knowledge, remembrance, and forgetfulness of materialism to the materialist and of spiritualism to the spiritualist. And Krishna says that he's there in the Vedas. And the Vedas give prescription for how to become... Uh, successful in this world, and also give instruction how to pertain to Krishna. So these are just look at three of Krishna's qualities here. The fact Krishna has unlimited qualities, and this you're not going to be able to see at all. Oh, well, sorry. Uh, these are four qualities that no... Thank you. These are four qualities that only Krishna displays. No other 
form or mood of Krishna displays these qualities. Please do not think that the other forms do not have these qualities. They just don't display them. There's one God. It's not that Nisimhadeva is one God, and Ramchandra is another God, and Krishna is another God. They're all the same person. However, Krishna in his original form manifests four things that none of his other forms manifest. So, for practical purposes, the other forms don't have them. <laughs> but they have them, they just never show them. So these four, the one of them is Krishna's very wonderful pastime. Especially his childhood pastimes and his Rathamila pastimes. Very intimate, sweet pastimes. Then his, the type of devotees that surround Krishna are different from the type of devotees that worship the other incarnations. The type of devotees that surround Krishna forget that he's God. They don't even care that he's God. They just love him. They just want to be with him. They can explain philosophically how he's God. Like the intimate gopis, they also appear as the Goswamis, who are great philosophers, and explain how Krishna is God. But they don't personally really care. They just love Krishna. And just like uh, all of us have parents, and we have done something in this world, I hope, that our parents are proud of. Right? So let's say we do some very wonderful thing, we get some award, or we get some degree, or we get some honor, or we have a lot of money, or something like that. So our parents may be thinking, oh, here's my son, here's my daughter, they've done such nice things. But all that, all they really care about is their relationship with us. They may know that we have a lot of money, or they may know that we have some honor. It's not that they don't know, but they don't really care. Uh, their love for us is not dependent on such things, and ultimately they're not so much interested in such things. The third is that Krishna attracts everyone by playing his flute. So in this material world, very often musicians become very attractive. Everyone is falling at their feet, right? Uh, but Krishna, he just plays his flute, and the stones melt in love, and the rivers flow backwards, and the, the moving beings become stunned. And everyone is, it, it, each person is thinking, Krishna's food is only calling me. They're thinking like that. Uh, even if each of the cows is thinking like that. They're thinking, oh, Krishna's playing his flute just for me. Krishna just loves me. Each gopi is thinking, oh, Krishna's calling just me. Each cowboy boy is thinking, oh, this just Krishna plays one note, and all of his devotees become mad with love. And the great demigods cannot even understand the musical arrangement. And the other is Krishna's beauty. Now, although Krishna in all of his forms, even forms like Varaha, who's like a, a, a pig, <laughs> is very, very beautiful. But Krishna in his original form is so beautiful that if he happens to catch his reflection in a mirror or a lake, he's overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> Sometimes we might think that way about ourselves. <laughs> Doesn't last, I'll tell you that. All right. And we're going to look also at Krishna's personality. Because God is a person. God is not just some formless energy and light. Can, can you read that at all? Okay. 
So Krishna has four aspects to his personality. Now, who here has, has studied material personality things like Myers-Briggs? Anyone here studied anything like that? Oh, you have. Okay, good. Anybody else at all study different personality types? Someday maybe I'll teach you all. So there's many different ways materially of analyzing different personalities. I'll, we'll give a little example here. So if you had to choose, if you actually had to choose between whether you're more fast-paced and outgoing or whether you're more slower-paced and reserved, we're all a little of both, but if you had to choose, who would say that they're more fast-paced and outgoing? And who would say that they're more slower-paced and reserved? You're not even, you don't raise your hands even this high, don't you? <laughs> And then, if, if you, again, if you had, no, it's true. if you had to choose between whether you're more task-oriented or people-oriented, in other words, if you had some free time, you could do whatever you wanted. Would you get some work done, or would you just go hang out with other people? If you're in the middle of a job and your friend comes along, would you stop your work and hang out with your friend, or would you ask your friend to help you with the job? So again, we're each a little of both. But if you had to choose, who would say that they're more task-oriented? Okay, who would say they're more people-oriented? Okay, so we found now four types of people. Some of you are fast-paced and task-oriented. Some of you are fast-paced and people-oriented. Some of you are reserved and task-oriented. Some of you are reserved and people-oriented. Is that right? Okay. Those are just very general. Of course, we're all a little bit of a mixture. But we could give a whole analysis for each of these types. What are our strengths and what are our weaknesses? Each of these types has a strength and weakness. And there's exactly the same quality. Exactly. Like those of you who are reserved and people-oriented, I guarantee you that people in general like you. If I ask them the Pandavasena, who are the nicest people? Just the sweetest people that pretty much everybody gets along with. I give you 99% guarantee they're all reserved, people-oriented persons. These people, their strength is that they get along with other people. Their weakness is they don't have strong opinions about things that they express. They have a hard time saying no. If they had an easy time saying no and had strong opinions that they expressed, then they wouldn't get along with everybody, no, would they? <laughs> so the very quality that makes them wonderful and easy to get along with also causes them some problems. Is this clear? And for each of the types, those people who are reserved and task-oriented, those are the people that should be managing the accounts. Many times these are the people that should be uh, pujari. These people are very attentive to detail. Sometimes they're perfectionists. Very in, they're very inquisitive. It's those people here who are thinking, I wonder if these things she's talking about now are bona fide. They're, they're <laughs> 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 guaranteed. Uh, they're often known as very intelligent. They ask a lot of questions. And they're very interested in having things perfect. They're also not particularly friendly. 
So, and they try to hold other people to the same standards of perfection. So again, the, the qualities that make them very wonderful in one way, those same qualities also cause them difficulty. Those of you who are outgoing people-oriented, you're fun. You're the party type and the festival type. You like to get up in front of 100,000 people. You like to travel. You like to change and do something exciting. If somebody wants a really nice party, they should include somebody like you. Right, but it's kind of hard to get them to be very serious. They don't like doing repetitive things over a long period of time. If you give them a service like that to do, they probably will walk away after a while and be bored. Don't try to hold people like that to a very tight budget. You know? So again, the same qualities which make them very attractive and which are their opulence are also a difficulty. And then the fast-paced, task-oriented person. Uh, these people can do 12 or 15 tasks at once and do them all well. They're very results-oriented. They're very determined. They're very driven. And they don't so much care about people's feelings. They're more interested in getting things done yesterday. And whatever it takes to get there. These people are very courageous, but they can also be reckless. So again, the same qualities that give that person opulence and make them attractive are also a problem for them. So this is a very brief synopsis. It takes about a day to learn this thoroughly, not five minutes. But at least you have some idea. And we're all mixtures of these. None of us are just one thing, obviously. But my point is that each of us have a personality. By the way, the personality we're manifesting in this life is not our eternal personality. Just like our present eye color is not our eternal eye color. But we have a personality, and that personality has strengths and it has weaknesses. There's none of us that have a personality that's only strength. We may think that way. If, if we focus on our own strengths, and we don't understand how other people perceive our strengths as weaknesses, the very things that we like about ourselves also cause us problems and cause problems for other people. Uh, we may not see, when we look at other people, we may see their weaknesses and we look at ourselves, we may see our strengths. But Krishna's personality is not like that. Krishna's personality is only strength. Krishna doesn't have like a flip negative side to his personality and Krishna manifests all aspects of personality. So we're going to look at four according to Rupa Goswami. The first is Jirodhata. So this is someone who's grave, gentle, forgiving, merciful, determined, humble, highly qualified, chivalrous, and physically attractive. And an example of this quality of Jirodhata is seen in Lord Ramachandra. The hero. The king. And Krishna displayed this quality of Jirodhata when he lifted Govardhan Hill. Again, the hero. So here Krishna's lifting Govardhan Hill, and there he's showing us the most attractive hero. Alright, and his next quality is that of Dira Lalita. And Dira Lalita, he's naturally funny, always youthful, expert in joking, and he has no anxiety. As such a person is very domesticated and submissive to his girlfriend. And the example of that is Cupid. And here you see a nice pastime where Krishna is showing himself as Dira Lalita. This is where 
Satya Bama is saying, why does my co-wife Rukmini uh, have a parijata flower from heaven? Why can't I have a parijata flower? And so Krishna goes all the way to the heavenly planet to get her a parijata flower. So this is Diravalita. And the next is Diraprasanta. And Diraprasanta is somebody who's peaceful, forbearing, considerate. An example of Diraprasanta uh, is Maharaj Yudhisthira. Always serving the devotees, very humble. And Krishna showed his Diraprasanta when he was driving Arjuna's chariot. Can some of you at least see this picture? Krishna driving Arjuna's chariot? That he's the servant of Arjuna. Arjuna says, please take my chariot between the armies. And Krishna says, yes. Whatever you want. Just the, the servant of his devotees. And then we can look at Dirodhata. Dirodhata is somebody who's angry and proud, like Bhima. And we might think, well, that doesn't seem like a nice quality. But as I was saying, there's no quality in Krishna that has a negative effect. They're all nice. So just like we see this, this mother here with her daughter and son, right? And if, if somebody was trying to hurt her little boy, Arjuna, so if the mother became very angry and was attacking the person, then we, would we call that a bad quality? No, that's a very good quality. So when Krishna's devotees are being attacked, and then Krishna becomes like that, he appears to be angry and proud. And this is uh, shown in the story of this one false god, he comes before Krishna, he says, I'm Vishnu. <laughs> surrender your weapons. So Krishna says, sure, I'll surrender my disc and cut off your head. <laughs> That's this picture here. So to summarize, we can know something about God through our mind and our senses, but there's a limit. If we really want to know everything about God, then we have to take up the Vedic understanding. And the ultimate understanding of God is that of Krishna. So here, of course, Krishna has appeared as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And we are having this retreat in order to get to know Krishna, not just in theory, not just that I'm coming and speaking some theory, but we can actually get to know Krishna. We can see Krishna face to face. We can talk to Krishna. We can shake Krishna's hand. Prabhupada <laughs> um, says that just like Lord Brahma, Krishna went and shook his hand and said, thank you very much for your service. So that also, we can get to know Krishna directly. And that is the idea. Everything that we're doing is to get to know who is God, beyond what we can understand with our mind and senses. So that is this invitation now for these next few days, is that take these next few days, everything that we're doing, that is its purpose. But just to keep that in mind, the purpose of what I am doing is to get to know Krishna, to establish my relationship with Krishna. So are there any questions, comments? Yes? When you say establish relationship, is it re-establish? Yes. Re-establish. Thank you. Anything else? Yes. Um, all those qualities that Krishna, um, the qualities that we are also aspiring. Yes, that's because we are part of Krishna. Mamai Vamsa Jiva Loke Jiva Bhutta Sanatana. We are part of Krishna. 
So we all we don't have the qualities of Krishna to create many universes coming from our pores of our body. That we don't have that quality. And we'll never have a quality that we just play one note on a flute and the whole creation goes mad in love. That we'll not have that quality. But for about 80% of Krishna's qualities, we also have those qualities in a smaller degree. So as we wake up to our relationship with Krishna, we revive who we are and those qualities again manifest. But we can never be dependable like Krishna. That's not possible. Anything else? Yes. Lack and preserves what we have. Ah, well, Krishna is not sentimental, first of all. Krishna does whatever is necessary to bring us to unlimited happiness and unlimited knowledge and eternal life. So he keeps whatever we have that will help us achieve that, and he gives us whatever we lack that will help us achieve that. And with material vision, we may see things differently. Just like uh, if someone's going to university, and they say, I really want to get my degree. But then they also have a tendency to go to the parties. So if they have an academic advisor who really cares about them, their academic advisor will say, no more parties. And you may say, well, if they care about me, why are they keeping me from doing what I want to do? So sometimes becoming poor or sick or hurt or whatever is necessary for us to achieve our goal. Krishna's not a sentimentalist. Now, it's not that you can't become fully Krishna conscious if you're rich and healthy and beautiful and like that, but that's up to us. You know, if somebody's material opulence, if we're not using our opulence properly and we really want unlimited happiness, then Krishna may take it away. Does that make sense? And as far as dying, you want to stay forever in this body? Do you want to stay forever? (laughs) Do we really want to, like, eternally use the toilet? (laughs) Is that pleasing? So, (laughs) and get sick again. I mean, who? I never understood why anybody wants to live eternally in this body. It's just, I don't get it. (laughs) I never could figure that out. Why do they want to do that? That's being released from prison. Of course, materialistic persons die and they're just being transferred from one cell to the other. When the devotee dies, they're being let out of the prison. So we see that the jailkeeper's coming out and everyone's coming out of the cell, the devotees and the non-devotees. But where the devotees are going and where the non-devotees are going is a different place. And you say, well, if Krishna loves us, why is he unlocking us, taking us out of the cell? Not, not a very smart, I'm not criticizing these people, everybody says it's not a very smart question, is it? If he really loved us, he'd keep us in this body forever. I don't know. I don't think that's love. No. Death is not uh, difficult for the devotee. 
The devotee doesn't experience death as death. Just like I hope that tomorrow we'll all be wearing a different set of clothes. Or we clean these or something. <laughs> so that's not painful. Oh! Oh, we got to change my clothes. Oh, no! <laughs> I mean, they they get dirty, and this way they get sweaty, and we want to change our clothes, right? And the devotee is happy to give up the body. And it, I even notice like lightning and illumination occurring at the same time. One is seeing Krishna, one's with Krishna. You don't even notice you've given up your body. It's not even practically speaking, not even aware of that. For the materialist, death is painful because they really like their clothes. And sometimes we have some clothing we really, really like and it gets torn and it's old and we are, oh my God, I really like this. You know, you have an automobile you really like and it just, after a while you just can't keep it anymore and then you lament it, no, I've lost this automobile. So for the materialist, they're thinking, you know, I have this family, I have this education, I have this home, I have this business, and I work so hard for all these things, and now I have to leave them, and it's wrenching. That's why death is painful. So, I want to keep it. Oh, we can't. <laughs> but for the devotees, it's not. Does it matter? Yes. What if you have uh, people who depend on you then, and maybe they're not so, I don't know, they wouldn't be able to survive by themselves. Is that still unnecessary attachment? Even though it might Absolutely. Is, is anything that you just said, does that make any sense at all? I'm, I'm not criticizing. You just think, if someone's dependent on me, can anybody be dependent on me? Externally, it appears like that. Old and frail. Your mother was old and frail. But externally, it appears like that. If I'm taking care of someone, if I'm taking care of my old frail mother, or I'm taking care of my tiny infant, so it appears that that living entity, or I'm taking care of my pet, that they're dependent on me, and without me, they would perish. But I am simply the instrument for Krishna taking care of them, and Krishna can provide another instrument. And even with me there, they cannot be taken care of. I mean, I'm not... I'm not all powerful in, in providing care. I can be driving home to see my frail mother and I get in a car crash and I'm not capable then of taking care of my mother. So then, where did the question of dharma come into that? Because surely we all have duties. And so, surely, if we failed our duty, it wouldn't be failed because Krishna would just come in. Dharma is for our own purification, not because we are the doer or because we can control the results of our activities. The purpose of dharma is for our own purification. For a materialistic person, it is good for the materialistic person to think, I am the doer. These people are dependent on me. If I don't do my duty, other people will suffer. It's good for someone in material consciousness to think like that. And we should speak like that to people who are engrossed materially. But that is not actual truth. That is a, a, a distortion of truth. Just like you tell little children, that you can only take, when you're doing subtraction, you have to subtract a smaller number from a bigger number. You cannot do 5 minus 8. We tell the little children, that's not possible to do 5 minus 8. But it actually is possible. It's called death. <laughs> so, for someone who's materially engrossed, 
You say you have to do these duties because you are the doer. On a higher level, you have to do these duties for your own purification. On a higher level, you're doing these duties to please Krishna. He'll govern. If you'll if you'll surrender to him, he'll govern when the time is right and he'll make arrangements. He's doing that anyway, whether you surrender to him or not. Your surrender to him has nothing to do with it. Krishna is going Krishna's arranging everything for every living entity. He's arranging things for your invalid mother, he's arranging things for your infant, he's arranging things for your pet cow, whatever. Krishna's doing you're surrendered, you're not surrendered. It that that doesn't matter. What your surrender or not surrender matters is how you view that. Then surely, <laughs> surely then that would move pretty well. He's making all the arrangements. Then where where do where do I come to that point? Where do we come? It depends what you want to do for yourself. Okay, so so let's say that Mr. Smith is destined by his karma to die a very violent death. Are there many ways that he can die a violent death that have, that, where you or I don't have to kill him? There's unlimited ways that Mr. Smith could die a violent death, right? Do, is it required that I'm the instrument? Do I have to have a car accident with Mr. Smith and have, you know, is that required? Or do I have to murder Mr. Smith? Is that required? For him to die a violent death. Is it required that I have to be the instrument? Can he die a violent death from lightning? He doesn't need me at all. But if I hate Mr. Smith and I want to kill Mr. Smith, so Krishna says, okay, he deserves to die a violent death. You want to kill him, I bring you together. And the same way, if somebody's destined to get a million dollars, Krishna does not require me to give him a million dollars. He can give a million dollars, a million pounds, in so many ways. They can get a million pounds through their business. They can get a million pounds through an inheritance. They can get so many ways they can get a million pounds. But if I like Mr. Smith and I want to give Mr. Smith a million pounds, then I'm used as the instrument. And Krishna is very expert at bringing together what people deserve and need and what I want to do. And we can't imagine that anybody is that clever, but he's that clever. That he can bring together billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of desires and reactions. So I should act properly, ultimately, for whose benefit? Yeah, ultimately. But on the interim stage, then, for whose benefit? Mine. I can't really do good for anyone, nor can I hurt anybody. But if I have a mentality of hurting people, who will I hurt? Myself. If I have a mentality of doing good for others, who will I do good for? No, myself. I can't. Karmically, we're speaking karmically. If you want to talk about bhakti, that's another topic. We're not going to settle this in one minute. Okay. Thank you very much. All glorious to Shiva Prabhupada. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.